Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. We're be resuming our series. Um, and uh, the passage that is before us uh, is a dramatic account, as you're about to read with me. And in the time that remains, we'll devote our full attention to the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5 in a message I've entitled, How Much Jesus Has Done, which is a quote from verse 20. So my prayer this morning is that the Lord would not only bless the preaching of his word, but he would encourage your heart this morning in ways that are helpful and instructive from his word for his glory. This is God's word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he, Jesus, gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him 
that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. God, we are here to hear from you. Would you please speak to us through the preaching of your word? I pray that you would help me to serve this morning from your word, that we would all be edified, that your enemy would be horrified, that your name would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark, the writer, has taken pains through these stories that he has composed to share with us what can be known about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth and the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the, one writer describes it, the quality of salvation he came to give, the quality of salvation he came to give. This story you just read is the longest story in all four of the Gospels when it comes to deliverance from evil spirits. And so Mark, who, as you, if you're familiar, doesn't usually spend a lot of space and ink on details, spends a lot of space and ink on this. And it must raise the question for you, why? Why so much detail? Now, we moderns who are skeptical to be generous of anything supernatural, let alone demonic, can easily dismiss a passage like this and categorize it as fictional at worst or something that has been rendered obsolete or unimportant due to the science and breakthroughs of moderns and the primitiveness of the audience. So for any skeptics that might be listening, I, I can understand your skepticism, and at times, uh, the preoccupation with passages like this, where the focus is on the demonic or deliverance ministry, has made it even more confusing, because the purpose of this passage is not primarily to focus us on the supernatural evil that is represented here. That is a complete mishandling of the text. The focus of the text is on Jesus. And so when Christians, well-meaning, drop in the passages like this and make it about something that Mark never intended, I might be skeptical too. 
But in being skeptical, it diminishes, it even undermines the hope and the help that a passage like this can bring to Christian and non-Christian alike when you are tormented and in trouble spiritually by a power or a strength that you know not of. Unless you think I'm making this up, Paul in his letters, both Ephesians and Colossians, in giving thanks for the great salvation God has wrought, acknowledges that not only has Christ died for their sins, as their substitute have been raised again, eternally glorious, but he's delivered them from the domain of darkness. It's real. Even if it's at times hard in our experience to quantify it or discern it. Or... So my prayer this morning is that for those in misery, they would be shown mercy and for those who are experiencing guilt, they would be shown grace. But for each of us, we would come away more drawn to the main character of this story, Jesus of Nazareth, and not the concentration of evil that we read. Here's my point this morning. Jesus Christ came to save the guilty and show mercy to those in misery. Aren't you glad? And if you're joining us via stream, he came for you too. Whether you feel that this passage bears relevance to your situation, he comes to show mercy to you in your miseries and to provide grace to save the guilty through faith in him. Let's look at the story together, the true story that we read. Verses 1 and 2 introduces us to a surprising Savior, doesn't it? A surprising Savior who seeks after those who are not looking for him. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. It says that he and the other disciples went to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. I love that word. I had to look it up how to pronounce it. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So to bring us back to Mark, the previous passage, which I believe Dave preached, but it may have been Dan, was as they were traveling the Sea of Galilee, do you remember what overtook them on the sea? A great storm. A great storm, a surprising, tumultuous, life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples thought they were going to perish. That's how chapter 4 ended. They're in the boat with Jesus, and a storm engulfs them, and they feel, understandably, that they are going to die. Now, I don't know if you've had any experiences on a boat, during a storm, or on an airplane where you encounter unexpected turbulence, or on the MBTA subway in Boston when, when it's 100 degrees inside the car, they decide to have a power outage and you're stuck there. When that journey is over, 
Are you not relieved to be off the boat or out of the airplane or out of the MBTA? Of course you are. So you can imagine what the disciples were feeling when they pulled up on the shore, having survived this storm with Jesus. Thank the Lord that that's over. Of course, they did say, which we pointed out, and you would see anyway, that during the storm, Jesus, with a word, commanded the seas and the wind to cease, and they did. And they said, who then is this? And fear filled their hearts. But the journey's over. They're on the beach. A feeling of relief fills their hearts. And then suddenly, immediately, a man, it says, charges them runs to them, screaming at them. He's out of his mind. A man with an unclean spirit. Jesus seeks after those who are not looking for him. This country of the Gerasenes is Gentile country, not Jewish. His traveling there was intentional. We're not told how he knew, but he knew there resided there a Gentile man who was completely captive to evil, and he sought him out. And that's what Jesus is doing today. Through the church and through you, his ambassador. He seeks after those who are not seeking for him. That's why there are missionaries that we pray for. And that's why you're in your neighborhoods where you reside. And that's why we do harvest festivals. Even when we don't live here, for most of us. Because Jesus hasn't stopped seeking those who are not seeking for him. Good news. That brings comfort to my heart. Not only when I was first converted, but he's still the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. The one when the 99. Because that's the gracious Savior of Mark's gospel. Second point. And more to the point, Jesus is stronger than evil and plunder Satan's kingdom, beginning in verse 3 through verse 16. Mark tells us what happened immediately. He says that this man, this tormented man, verse 6, who saw Jesus afar, ran to him and fell down before him, but not before giving us this description, beginning in verse 3. This man lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and 
cutting himself with stones. So here they are, the disciples. I mean, if I were there and I were one of the disciples, I'm trying to just picture with my imagination how they're taking this in. They've just arrived having survived a near-death experience and out from the tombs comes a man who is scarred and naked, charging towards them, crying loudly, who perhaps there are chains broken. You know, this is, we won't meet anyone like this at the Harvest Festival, unless you think we shouldn't sign up, that this is your calling. But surely this man must have been frightening to them. Yes? Surely the question that crosses their minds is, now what? I'm so glad Mark was inspired to include this in his gospel. He had a purpose in including this account in his gospel. This longest, most detailed account of a deliverance in the gospels. Why did Mark include this story? Why did Mark give us details such as this? For the story is not primarily about the man, as graphic as the details was. It isn't about the concentration of evil that tormented him, though that is real. It is the story about the one who arrives on the shores of the country of the Gerasenes to rescue a man who is tormented by evil. It's about the identity and authority of the Son of God over even the demonic and the quality of the salvation he brings. It's a story about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the Savior. It's a story about the compassion of Jesus for tormented souls. Nothing happens before he arrives. Everything changes after he arrives. Because Jesus is stronger. That's what we sang. He is stronger than evil and plunders Satan's kingdom. He's interrupted the story in verse 3, 4, and 5 to give us details about this poor man. And the description is heartbreaking. But now he takes up the story again in verse 6. He returns, if you will, to the narrative. And crying out with a loud voice, verse 6, the man says... What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. For we are many. There is no question, there is no confusion about Jesus' identity when it comes to the presence of these evil spirits in the man. And we will see this repeatedly in this gospel, but there remains confusion and there remains question by the 12 disciples over who Jesus 
is there remains confusion and there remains questions about who Jesus' identity is to his own family members. But there is no question to these evil spirits who Jesus is. But there is one who is in complete charge of what is happening. There is one who takes charge of all that is going on. Even as it appears to be the outbreak of chaos, there is one who commands the evil spirit to identify himself as legion, which literally a Roman legion numbers 6,000 foot soldiers, which is hard to conceive that there's 6,000 spirits harassing, oppressing, tormenting this individual, yet this concentration of evil reveals that these spirits are terrified of him. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Do not torment me, verse 7. One of the things I appreciated about about Christian fiction, good Christian fiction, if I'm allowed to make that modifier, is that it does interview, introduce into the public conversation, broadly speaking, biblical realities. So several years ago, and this dates me, when a book like This Present Darkness was written by Frank Peretti, it introduced to the popular mindset, hey, there's a spiritual reality out there between good and evil, and there's a battle going on. It was fiction. Most people recognize that. It wasn't to be taken literally. We don't derive our understanding of scriptural truth ultimately from fiction. But it did make the point quite graphically that evil's real and it oppresses people. The challenge of that book, if you read it undiscerningly, is you could conclude that God and evil are on an equal par. That if, to use an analogy, if this were a boxing match, that we're going 12 rounds or 14 rounds or 16 rounds with evil, and yes, at the end, finally, Jesus lands the knockout blow, or it's a technical knockout, and, which that's not true. Not in this story. There is no contest. There is no battle. There is no struggle. Everything changes when Jesus confronts evil in this man. How do we miss that in the church today? How do we become, if you will, cowed by a reality that only God can reveal, but in light of the enemies we heard that God defeats, Psalm 66, Jesus wins the day. They were expelled with a word because Jesus' authority and power are uniquely being demonstrated in this moment. This was part of the reason he had come. He came, Mark 3, verse 27, Jim quote number one, he came to enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods and bind the strong man. Indeed, he came to plunder his house. 
Jason Meyer, whose commentary devotional we made available to you back, writes this about this passage. No one was strong enough to help this man, quote number two, Jim. But Jesus can do what no one else can do. He does not tame us. He transforms us. He does not bind us. He sets us free. He is a great Savior who gives not only grace, but mercy. Grace is the unmerited goodness and love of God given to those who have forfeited every claim upon him and his love and who deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation. Mercy, mercy is the goodness and love of God towards those who are in misery or distress as the result of their sin. Jesus' strength clothed in mercy plunders the evil that tormented and controlled this man and delivers him from darkness. We see that at the end of the section. This is written as if it's a testimony. When the herdsmen, verse 14, returned, they find the demon-possessed man, verse 15, who had had the legion, verse 15, sitting there clothed and in his right hand, and the herdsmen were afraid. What is this? What is going on? We are starting to understand that a common reaction to the presence of God when his power is revealed in the face of evil and unholiness is not flippancy nor casual conversation, but fear, trembling, awe. What's tragic and astonishing is not the response of the man, but the response of the, of the town. The herdsmen told what had happened in the city when the legion came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the pigs ran down, rushed down the steep bank, verse 13, and drowned into the sea. Their reaction upon hearing the news and seeing the man once who was demon-possessed, clothed and in his right man at Jesus' feet, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. They begged Jesus to depart from their region. Perhaps for fear that Jesus' presence in their lives would disrupt their business, the loss of their herds, chokes the word, the deceitfulness of riches as he taught in his parable of the soils and the desire for other things made even the ministry of the Messiah in their midst unfruitful. What's more alarming is Jesus honored their request. He made no protest. He didn't say, oh no, I must stay. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to me. He left because they ask him to. It 
Jesus is stronger than evil. He seeks after those who are not looking for him because he is merciful. And finally, Jesus' mercy calls us to mission to tell others how much the Lord has done for us. Following the drama of the herd stampeding into the sea, which someone suggested, I'm not a farmer, so this this is just for free, not research. Someone suggested that pigs aren't by nature animals that herd. They're independent. They don't move as a herd like Linda's nodding her head. She knows some farmers. So when these pigs stampeded as a herd together, something unnatural is occurring to demonstrate the reality of something supernatural happening in the man. Freedom, mercy, deliverance through the power of the Messiah. So wouldn't you expect in that moment, this man who has lived in the tombs alone, who has been tormented to the point that he's not only controlled by these spirits that that have strength that cause him to break chains, but he was actually inflicting wounds upon himself and howling. What did you expect that in his right mind when he says to Jesus, can I go with you? He would say, come on. That's what they do in The Chosen where all theology gets checked these days. When someone wants to follow Jesus, says, come on, join the party. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, not only does he not say, come on, he says, you can't get in the boat. What? You can't get in the boat. And... Because you're a student, you're watching this. He tells them to do something that up to this point, he's told everyone else not to do. I'm sure you saw that. Go home and tell everyone what God has done. And that Jesus of Nazareth, did you see that? He said, go, tell, tell them how God has had mercy on you. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell how much the Lord has done having begged him, having begged our Lord, take me with you, my my redeemer, my take me with you. No, go and tell your friends how much he has had mercy on you. Didn't Didn't we read earlier where people were being healed in Judea, delivered in Judea, and he would say, don't tell anyone. So you read the gospel, and now he's telling him, go tell everyone. First, why wouldn't you bring him with you? And secondly, why are you telling him to tell everyone when everyone else in the Jewish nation are told to be silent about his identity? Details matter in Scripture. They're inspired, they're authoritative, and they're clear. And so it's clear that the Lord is commissioning him to 
spread the news of his identity and authority amongst Gentiles. So then when we get to chapter 7, and Jesus returns to that area, there's a multitude of people that want to hear and see more. And the feeding, the feeding of the 5,000 occurs simply by him going and telling how the Lord has shown mercy to him. Stay with me, I'm finishing up. But why would he not allow him to come with him? Why would he not allow this one so demonstrably delivered by the mercy of God to journey with him? It really draws into focus the unique call and identity of the 12 that we read about in the opening chapters. These Jewish men whom Jesus denotes as apostles, these these men who are going to walk and travel with Jesus, some of which will write scripture, others of which will be used to be pillars in the church, their unique identity prohibits him joining them at this juncture. But the story is the same. And our call from this passage is clear. Jesus' mercy towards those whom are sinful and Jesus' mission towards those whom are tormented and by evil await our telling them what the Lord has done for us. Let's apply it and we'll end with this. How do I apply a message like this with some, with both feet on the ground? Well, first, I want to remind each of us as I'm reminding myself that we have more in common with this tormented man now delivered and free than than we realize. And these familiar words from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians say that. And you, speaking of the Ephesians, who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, you, by the mercy of God, through faith in the gospel, through repenting for your sins, through relationship with Jesus Christ. God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. We have something in common with this man. Through Christ and our relationship with him, he has delivered us from the spirit that is now at work in our world. Isn't that good news? But we have something that this man didn't have. He did not have what we have at the time of his commissioning. He cried from those tombs and in those banks, cries of agony and torment prior to Jesus arriving 
only to encounter in Jesus the unique authority and salvation of the Son of Man. We, through Scripture, have beheld Jesus crying on the cross on our behalf as he was suspended there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. We've heard that. His death in our place, not only for our sins, but to satisfy the just wrath of God once and for all, being raised triumphantly by his Father and through the Spirit, now seated, ascended, reigning. We have that. So what should be our response? Colossians will help us. Three, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If you are a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian, you're streaming with us, you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and through the miracle work of the Spirit have been born anew in him, he has won the victory. Yes? Give thanks. Give thanks. It should begin our day. You know, when I have three lights on in my car, which tells me that the engine's getting old and it's going to die soon. One of the spiritual lights that goes on on my dashboard, which I sometimes choose to ignore, like the three lights in my car, is the command to give thanks for what Christ has already done. And when I stop giving thanks, not only am I disobeying a repeated command in Scripture for his redemption, for his deliverance, for my rescue, when I stop giving thanks, something fills the void. This might surprise you. Pride. I'm proud. I'm self-reliant. And my self-reliance expresses itself in many ways, like my vacuum cleaner has many attachments. One way it expresses it is I'm always bringing God what I don't have and what I lack while forgetting and never pausing and just humbly saying, Lord, but what I do have, I love where Dave took us last week. You've won the victory over so many of my enemies. I give thanks. I worship you as an expression of humility. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's unending. It's unmerited. It's grace. Amen? That's why Crossway Church, we continue to endeavor to be the most thankful people anyone knows because of the victories Christ has won. So then, when someone asks you tomorrow at work, what'd you do this weekend? And everyone's going to say, did you watch the game? I did watch the game, but you know what I did first? I went to church. I went to church. You did what? Recently, one of my kids said that. I went to church. Church? Who goes to church? I'm quoting, like, literally, what is church? What? Are you an alien? He didn't say that. Because we give thanks to Christ who defeated so many of our enemies. And then we're humble, 
And when we're humble, we're positioned to receive more grace. And one of those graces is we thank God for stories like this that reminds us that the mercy you've been shown commissions us on a mission and we're joining him. So yes, sign up for the Franklin Harvest Festival as an expression of your thanks. I don't care if you're a member, a guest, an Eagles fan. I don't care who. Let's love our neighbor as an expression of thanksgiving to God, whether they ever darken our doors or not, because we have been given this. Amen? Amen. But then, lastly, let's remember that we are opposed. There are spiritual forces arrayed against us. The battle continues, although Jesus has won the victory. And so as we link arms in prayer, as we take our stand, Ephesians 6, with the shield of faith and the gospel realities that Paul describes for the church corporate in Ephesians 6, as we do that, as we fight, as we pray, as we endure suffering together, as we share, as we preach, as we teach, as we move forward in the purposes of God, we will discover and we will hold fast to this reality. Jesus came to save the guilty and show mercy to those in mystery. And we, we, even in days of battle, belong to him. Let's pray. Lord, no one, no one could enter this man's house that we read of and plunder his goods, but you bound the strong man. You plundered his house in order in mercy to deliver him out of his misery and rescue him through saving relationship with you. We, Lord, on this side of the story say thank you for rescuing us, Jesus, through your perfect life lived and your substitutionary death given, and your triumphant resurrection, we affirm and celebrate. So today, as we conclude, we say you reign. Reign more in our lives and hearts, and use us on this mission of mercy to not only share the gospel by telling others how much the Lord has done for us, but in compassion, seek after those who are not seeking after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Let's stand.